0: Welcome to Shooting the Frisbees with your hosts, Jake and Randy. Discussing all things freestyle frisbee and whatever else that comes up. All right. Welcome to Shooting the Frisbees with Jake and Randy. Hey, Randy, how's it going? Hey, Jake, I'm doing good today. How are you doing? I'm doing wonderful. I've been doing some binge watching since I'm indoors so much.
1: Yeah, it seems to be what everybody is kind of doing a little bit of. But yeah, I've been watching a few things. But uh one thing that I've gotten into is Miss America. So it's something I believe that's on Hulu. But it is this uh show that is about Phyllis Schlafly and the ERA and her being very opposed to this legislation passing. So I think there's been like five episodes. So that's sort of what we've been diving into a little bit. How about you?
0: Yeah, we actually watched the amazon series upload we probably spent three days watching 10 episodes just blew through it and uh, it's kind of interesting it's set in the future and when you're about to die you can have your consciousness uploaded into this virtual world where you can then continue to live for in theory forever and so they explore all of the social consequences of this this different world, and um, it's really interesting because it's like this little love story, but it's also got this mystery running in the background that advances really slowly, but it's just enough to keep you wanting to know what happens next, so you keep, like want to keep watching It's actually a pretty good show, I think.
1: Wow, interesting. I'll have to check that out. So maybe we should switch gears here and actually talk about what we're here for and what we truly have a passion for. And uh, I'm super excited about today's episode because we're going to start the journey... With another Hall of Famer, uh, he was actually part of the initial class that was inducted in New York City in 2016. He is really a true pioneer of our sport, and and not just freestyle, but he was also one of the best overall players our sport has ever seen. So his flow and his creativity, as well as his technical abilities, in my opinion, really set him apart as a freestyler. So you know, I I find that his style has a musical quality to it, and it was so accessible to an audience that when he played I had a hard time taking my eyes off of him. So, you know, there were two players who were a huge influence on me, and one of them was Donnie Rhodes, and the other is our guest today. Uh, like I say, I'm super excited. I've never really spoke with him before. I, I must admit I'm a bit nervous cuz I'm such a huge fan. So, without further ado, I would like to welcome Craden Sickle to shooting the frisbees.
2: Welcome, Cray. Hi guys. Yeah, I, I'm delighted to be here. It's really fun to connect with my old Frisbee brothers. Uh, I don't do enough of it these days, but needless to say, it has a very, very big and warm and special place in my heart. And you guys are having uh, less experience with uh, you, Jake, but but enough. And then with Randy. Uh, I have tremendous admiration for both of the, the the sort of journeys that you guys have taken and the, and the ways in which you approach playing. Um, and, you know, I, I must admit that there are a lot of players that I think are great and a few that stand out because of a um, word that you mentioned, Randy, which is really uh, a core word for me, which is flow. And um, so anyway, so I'm delighted to be here.
1: Yeah. And like I say, I'm I'm a huge fanboy. And so you and Donnie for me were like the people that were so different than everybody else, where you really had these technical skills that were valid, yet it seemed like it was really about a dance between what you were doing and how the audience was taking it in. It wasn't just this silo or a solo effect of like, I'm jamming and I'm so hane. It was kind of like this art and this dance and this flow. So you, for me, were one of those folks that really highlighted that and, you know, was something that was super attractive. So I'm going to ask you a question. It's something where we start with everyone. is so how did Frisbee come into your life?
2: Oh, uh, that was very unambiguous. My father, um, you know, who we lived down in Greenwich Village, and uh, he was there in the late 50s and early 60s. I was born in 1960. And uh, among the first runs of the wham Frisbees, I think... Uh, he he got hold of that, and being a bohemian hippie, um, the frisbee had immediate appeal as a inherently sort of non-competitive, at least you know in the way that it was perceived in that in that context. And you know, needless to say, the the imagination of the of the lyrical aspects of flight, and you could skip skip it, and you know. So anyway, so it was a very popular. Among those uh, guys who were athletic, but also um, had a different sort of bent on on what their interests were. So anyway, so um, how I was introduced to Frisbee was um, through my dad. Uh, he He got uh, an early um, probably must have been a Pluto platter. I have a picture of myself that I had in my little promotional, Portfolio uh, holding a Pluto platter when I'm like two years old in my little Oshkosh bagash suspenders. So I literally have been tossing since I was a baby, and there was a point in time when I was exploring all the other sports because you know I was played baseball and football and in the schoolyard and so forth. Um, some sometimes with Joey Hudakon, by the way, and of course Jeff Felberbaum. He came along after I was already squarely into, I mean, he was around um, and I knew him, but I I actually played basketball with Joey before I think I was focused on Frisbee, um, you know, a certain amount and knew Joey. He lived on Perry Street, which is right around the corner from where I was and right around the corner from where Jeff was. Um, and then in tandem or sort of The joke was, in exchange for playing ball sports with me, my dad would ask me to play Frisbee with him. And so we did, and we played. um, And then, of course, I got interested in it, you know. Anyway, and played down in Washington Square. When the game, the, the first games that were played before people, you know, people would do a little bit of tricks in the early days, like they, you know, learned to catch it behind their back and skip the throw and the sort of, Early flow move was to catch it behind your back and then do an underhand throw. Do you know what an underhand is? It's like the one that people use for z's mm. We call it the chicken wing. Yeah. the Chicken wing. Sure no, the that. chicken, chicken wings
0: wing. Yeah. Where you like wrap your thumb under your armpit. Correct. And, yeah.
1: Correct. Well, maybe so, on the well, on the east coast, the yeah. west coast, we call it a chicken wing, but regard oh. regardless, we know yeah. what you're talking about.
2: Anyway, so um But so there wasn't a whole lot of emphasis on tricks and usually like one guy would bring in a disc and some other random guy would bring in a disc. But then a bunch of people in Washington Square and I'm talking probably this is still this is definitely in the 60s. You just get a group of people on one side uh, um, and not even across the fountain, but just like on one or other side of the fountain, throwing it sort of half over the, the fountain, but just on one side. And you just try to throw it over the heads of the other guys on the other side, basically. And then it was like whoever could jump over and and, and field it above everybody else just got to throw it and catch it more. It was so so that was the game that we really started with. And there's a funny story about that, because when I was going when I first started going up to Central Park, there was sort of like a, an, an initiation process. Um, at one point, one of the critical things that I did was I skied over a mountain. Who was uh, he, one of the guys that was, you know, sort of a, a fixture up and one of the more protective or, or uh, he was sort of took took himself as proprietor over over the scene up there. So that was the game in in Washington Square where we would just basically stand on two sides and try to throw it over each other's heads. And that was common a lot of places. I started playing frisbee with my brothers, and I was the youngest. So I was the smallest, so we used to
1: play a game similar to that, but we called it three flies up. So you'd throw it up, and whoever would catch it three times would win. So it was a very similar game. So it was interesting to see how that game was probably being played all over the the country in some form or another.
2: So. Yeah. Well, we we then later I loved to do it with uh, aerobis, where we would spread way 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 out, and you'd do I think we called it ten, and whoever would catch it ten times would then get to be the thrower so and it's still to this day i think that's a really fun game (laughs) it's really fun although i can't jump as high as i used to (laughs) so that's how frisbee came into my life and then you know uh, it it transitioned you know i went through different i'd say frisbee came into my life in a few different you know times in my life right so he was the one who introduced it to me uh then uh this guy frank came from uptown Ah, uh, in Central Park, down to Washington Square, and he could throw it further than anybody had ever seen. And he could throw it easily across the from basically from the arch all the way over to the other, landing on the other side of the the park. And he also uh, was throwing a wrist flip, uh, which was a brand new phenomenon for me. And I was like, "Holy shit, man! Where are you? Where'd you come from? Like, where'd you learn to do this?" And he um, said, "Up in Central Park, There was like a real scene up there." And also, another guy that I was going to um, school with—I went to school in this sort of progressive school—also was saying, "You know, yeah, it's, there's a lot of really good players up there." And so Frank was was a, another threshold of frisbee coming into my life, and then I went up to the park and I saw Kerry Colmar and Paul Suzanne, who was uh, his his sort of you know partner sidekick at that point. And Kerry um, was throwing a sidearm that was just unbelievable. I mean, it came in with so much spin and velocity. I was like, man, this is like another. It sort of was like another universe. It was like another level up of because the disc itself has like this. Power and so, so when the disc is potentiated to another level, it was like that was what was going on. It was like I was aware of like the universe was this big, and then Frank came and boom, the universe got a little bit, you know, a little bit bigger, and then boom, I went up to the to the to the Central Park to the Banshell, and boom, it got a whole lot bigger real fast. And Carrie um, was doing really dynamic, like scissor kicks and and side arms and skipping it and spinning behind the back hatches and it was it was all speed flow at that point. So that would be the three times that I'd say Frisbee came into my life that were really, you know, worth mentioning.
0: Okay. So you come to the band shell for the first time. Um, first question is how old were you at this point? And then my second question is, were they really inviting to you or how how did you get welcomed into that scene?
2: <laughs> so I had hippie parents and when I was about 10, my mom moved to Santa Cruz from Greenwich Village, but I'd always been, I hadn't cut my hair basically since I was probably, I don't know, seven or, I don't know. I think I got one haircut in my life when I was younger. Maybe it was it was really young. So I i showed up in at the park and I had probably longer red hair than anybody. And at that point, you know, long hair was sort of like a little bit of a status symbol. And Carrie had long red hair and Paul had long red hair. And so they saw me and I was already a pretty good Frisbee player, right? Because I was, I was game, gamed up to the extent that I was with it. I was able to do it. Those guys thought I was the some hilarious, like little mini prodigy version of them. And they thought it was the funniest thing they would ever seen. And so they immediately took me. There was this uh, arbor of like of vines up behind the bandshell. And um, I was completely, like, stoked and blown away by the whole scene up there. I was playing my ass off. I was running around. And then they got me high on some hash that I just got completely, like, (laughs) and I was used to, I mean, I was used to weed. You know, it wasn't like this was anything new for me. (laughs) And uh, and it was, I think I was 12, 11 or 12. Uh, It was 72 probably. So then, um I went back down. and I remember like just like running into benches, and I like I slammed into this tree just because I was chasing the disc, so with such abandon that i I was so engrossed in it. and it was a very it was funny because I really beat myself up. There were these there were these um sort of raised curb rings around some of the trees there. And I remember like tripping over one of those things and slamming into the tree. It was really a funny day. Um, but it was really cool because they they immediately like took me under their wing and did a lot of stuff Kerry had had um, inherited some money from his family cuz his parents had just died and and so those guys were on a completely different level on a lot of a lot of ways they were 17 16 17 and they were sort of like cool kids in a cool scene you know it was a very cool scene that was I was very well accepted there on the other hand there was also like a bunch of hardcore city kids and you know people who were always gonna say this kid thinks he's so cool because he can play frisbee really well well let's see what else he's doing and so guys like mountain and this other guy jc had there was one day when they i don't think it was like they, they were always being sort of mischievous anyway but they decided to like make me the guy to throw the eggs at and try to try to like just basically humiliate the whole day it was like cat and mouse, and they were throwing things at me, and I was ducking them, and, and J.C. came right up to me at one point and like surprised me, but I like, slammed my hand against the one that he was going to throw the egg, and we just... So long story short, it was, I, I was I did okay in terms of not being intimidated by these older kids. And then, <laughs> they
1: were trying to, to haze you, like, okay, let's see what you got, kid.
2: These were, you know, these were like, you know, Mountain grew up in the Projects. A lot of these guys died violent deaths because they were pretty scrappy city kids jc and uh frankie kortner and a lot of the crew that were there it was there were a lot of drug dealers in that community right it was a very um lawless group and they were real the real thing so it was uh but they were also had hearts like as big as as lions right they were really loyal I mean, they were super, super loyal. It was a very tight knit group because there was this underlying lawlessness. They did have this need to make sure that you weren't, you know, somebody that they couldn't trust. And um, so uh, so it was a tight knit group because of that. And then we, you know, we traveled around. Frisbee sort of emerged as something that was a uh, co-focus for that for a bunch of them that had more or less to do with the drug culture. It was an, an example of the—I fris- think it's still true, maybe, but I don't know for sure. But in those days, the Frisbee community was an extremely diverse melting pot of people that never would have ever associated with each other had it not been for this common interest. You know, as I think there are now, like Columbia Columbia Law students and, and Ph.D. people and, um, you know, like Kirkland, who was at MIT— he, and wealthy people, and then really hardcore city people. Like there was a constituency Chow Rothman, uh, Rothman and and uh, Bruce, uh, what's his name from Chicago? That Chow was like a was like the mayor of South uh, Chicago. Uh, he was he was a tough little little guy. So there was a, there was a group of that that was floating around on the Frisbee circuit and everything in between, you know, there was, it was very interesting. So the, the central park scene was a melting pot of that too. We had some like sort of wealthy kids that were there and and a lot of black sheeps, uh, of the family, you know, some notable families in New York city for sure. And, and, um, and the Frisbee culture was very interesting as a result of that.
1: It was so true. And it is still true today, the diversity of, you know, class levels and however you want to label it. You know, I grew up in a hippie commune and I dropped out of high school and like kids used to make fun of me at high school and junior. I was like, I don't want to have anything to do with this. But I found this tribe that embraced me for whatever it was that I was. So it sounds like that's exactly what was happening with you as
2: well. Yeah, I mean, you know, New York is a pretty accepting place, but the the hippie commune thing is interesting. I, I didn't know that about you, but when we moved to Santa Cruz, we were on one of the early organic farms and gardens, which was a hippie commune in Santa Cruz up in Boulder Creek. When I was there with my very long hair and so forth, I went for a short period of time to the San Lorenzo Valley High, which is like middle America football and cheerleaders kind of thing. And there they completely (laughs) thought I was they were sort of familiar with it because it was Santa Cruz. But I was still on the lunatic, you know, hippie fringe for that area, if you can imagine, uh, in those days. New York City, you know, I went everything from the really, really hardcore. That was when busing was happening. You know, where they were bringing kids down from inner city Harlem that had literally practically never seen a squirrel, much less, you know, anything. And there was some really hardcore kids. So I went to everything from that to uh, to this free school in Santa Cruz to this San Lorenzo Valley High to all over the place. But when I went to the, you know, the community up in the park, you know, it was certainly, it was definitely, you know, the right kind of tribe. I mean, I, I felt like the entire Frisbee community was was very uh, compatible, even though we came from such diverse backgrounds. It was just a marvelous, the, the social aspect of it. Like, that's what I miss in my kite surfing and surfing. It's not like I don't have a tribe out here, but it's not as inherently social as it was Like every Frisbee tournament, you know, you'd spend the entire afternoon and evening and night just packing around and just exploring creative, you know, muses. And it was just like super, super great, you know, tight-knit tribe, which was really fun.
1: It's still true to this day, so it obviously was not just a a one-off. So it's cool. So you you went to Washington Square where you kind of first – thrown and then you migrated to Central Park where you get exposed to this other group that's there with Carrie and Brian Uray and Mountain and CB and there's still a thriving scene that's going on in Washington Park as well so is there much crossover collaboration are you hanging out there anymore or tell us a little bit about that
2: there was a bit of a gap that the the thriving scene in Washington Square re emerged I would say So I still lived downtown, trying to think. It was a couple years. I mean, things were moving faster then. It seemed like there was was definitely a gap between the the modality that I was doing in Washington Square and the modality that emerged with the Wizards, as it were, with like, you know, um, with Jeff and with um, Joey and Richie. And uh, I guess John Dwork started down there, too. There was a gap between those two events. Probably a couple years between when I didn't really go to Washington Square anymore to play. I only went to Central Park. And when the Wizards started to, you know, so, you know whatever, Joey and Richie and those guys. But it might have been because Jeff Felbermelm and I started to go to school together. Like one of the schools that I was mentioning that was sort of this progressive school. it's was called the Clinton program is where I probably... If I, I probably had met Jeff before, but that's when we started knowing each other more. And so it may be, and it was through mutual friends that were mostly centric. I mean, I had sort of had two sets of friends. I had friends that were my age, that were more downtown, and then I had the set of friends that were a little that were older, that were uptown. Eventually, some of that, like for instance, a lady that I was hanging out with, who was a friend of Jeff's, and who went to. The same school we did's older sister was going out with um, Paul, Suzanne, who was Carrie's uh, friend and sort of partner when I first went up there. So there started to be this crossover. But I suspect that in some way or other, the scene downtown was inspired, or instigated or whatever. It had to have been by those of us who were uptown. But they just started you know, playing right next to where they lived. They just started going out there and starting playing. And then that, of course, blossomed into its own its own scene.
0: It's interesting. I didn't realize that there were two, two, the same place, but two different scenes that had grown up uh, in different time periods. And it's interesting also that you sort of overlapped them.
2: Yeah, I mean, in the chronology, there were the guys like Uptown, um, Jerry Linus, Circus... And uh, there's a whole bunch of other guys that you probably wouldn't know, but you might know him him because he was he's he helped to do a lot of tournaments and graphics. And he was a great creative player. And so there were a bunch of players uptown like him. And then uh, there was the next tier, which was like Kerry and um, Paul, uh, who I mentioned and then I would, you know, I came after them in terms of, uh, you know, I, Kerry was, had invaded. you know, we were hanging out when one of the story that I think, I don't know if anybody's ever said, told this, but Kerry had this place on West 70th Street, way over by the river And um, we would go over there. Like I said, you know, when you're Frisbee players, you basically stop playing Frisbee and you just go hang out with each other in the house and you keep playing Frisbee. (laughs) And we were um, listening to Disraeli Gears. I remember very, very clearly. We I think it was a pro must have been a pro. We were just popping it up because one of the things that he showed me also was popping it up. Because we didn't pop, I you know we were just catching and throwing, but there was t- tipping was happening, so tipping was was going on. So he has these claw-like fingernails. We were probably a little bit high on cocaine, so we were a little bit jittery, and we were listening to Cream and Carrie was a was a real character and very. Uh, full of uh, very animated anyway so he was popping it up and tipping it and just started tipping it and and sort of like jitterily, like slowly doing it and at one point he did that and it just sort of settled down on his fingernail in the cupola of the pro and that was the invention of the uh, nail delay and i remember that i remember it very clearly and i've had this conversation with uh, paul suzanne who was the other witness there he remembered it very well it was an exciting recollection and reminiscence but um so that happened and of course that was like a, a mind blower and then he started and then Kerry also you know it would come in and he had in playing with the nail delay to try to get it off of a throw instead of popping it up you know it would go over to the rim and he figured out how to zip cut over the rim and then i don't know how the fuck he came up with the airbrush because I, I i don't remember specifically when that happened anyway so that was i thought that would be interesting to share because that was sure. a very seminal moment. Yeah, two seminal moments. at like the in <laughs> yeah. the brush. But, yeah, I don't remember specifically when. I mean, I remember him doing it, but I don't remember. I, I, have, I have images in my mind of him, of the first time that, he, that I saw it. But I don't know if it was the first time that he did it. But I definitely know that I was there the first time that he did the nail line. Wow.
1: That's cool. It's funny because we were talking to Joey. And if I'm remembering correctly, he said he had come from Washington Square and was down Central Park, kind of looking at what you guys were doing and that he remembers seeing Carrie do the airbrush. And Joey was like, oh my God, what was that? You know, like it was a mind blown moment seeing the the airbrush, if I'm remembering.
2: Oh, oh yeah. I mean, think about it. It was like, what the fuck was that that was exactly what it was yeah yeah that's cool some magic shit right there
1: Yes, Cray, you are right. That is some magic shit. I mean, that's amazing to think about the delay and the brush and those two foundational pieces of freestyle and how much joy that gives us today. You know, obviously throwing and catching is really great, but the delay and the brush have just opened it up for us to kind of have this joy that we kind of take for granted.
0: Um, yeah, I often wondered what the sport would be like without the nail delay and the airbrush? Would it be as engaging? Would it be as fulfilling? Like, I don't know, the way that we connect with each other in the mob ops, a lot of that stuff, I don't know if it would be able to happen without without the nail delay and the airbrush. What do you think?
1: I think it would still be fun. I mean, like I say, you know, the, the flight and the catch and the throw, but kind of being able to really manipulate the object with such extra detail, I know for me, really expands that, that place of creativity and the place of being present in the moment.
0: Yeah, it uh, really allows you to stay connected with the movement for a longer period of time with being able to take it on your nail, change the direction. I think that is part of what the engagement is because you have to, you really are connected to the movement. But with that said, I had a really great jam one time with Dave Murphy and Matt where we agreed at the beginning of the jam that we would not do nail delays. We did do airbrushes, but we wouldn't do nail delays. It was only throws, catches, airbrushes, tips, cuffs, and... It forced us to stay really tight, which actually was the opposite of what I thought. I thought we would spread out. But actually, we were really tight doing super short throws, brushes, tips, catches. Everything happened really fast. And uh, I remember at the end of it being exhausted, but also thinking, wow, that was one of the most interesting, intricate, uh, and connected with my partner's jams that I've ever had. It was really fun.
1: Wow, that's really interesting. So I assume that there probably wasn't long combos. It was, you know, pretty short exchanges to a catch.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, there were a lot of just throws to catches with maybe a hoop in the middle. Then there was a lot of like throw brush back fluff catch, but it was all really short combos.
1: Interesting to think about eliminating one or the other, the delay or the brush. And what does that bring to the table or what does it take away? Either way, very cool for Cray to have been there at the birth of those two things, which really have become foundational pieces of what we do today.
0: Well, it was it was very cool of him to share that experience with us because that has had such a dramatic impact on our lives. To have this little tiny bit of insight to how it all started, it's very special. So thanks, Cray.
1: And on that note, Jake, I'll talk to you next time.
0: Talk to you next time.